I sure do. Let me tell you, Brian. Uh, I was fortunate enough recently to play uh, with the with the Colorado Ballet, which which was quite an interesting uh, learning experience. Is the Colorado Ballet a small regional, small town, lovely amateurish ballet company? <laughs> no, this is a professional ballet company, and. Uh, the, the experience of playing with, with that high of a caliber of orchestra was definitely enlightening and terrifying. You know, I, as a member of the Colorado Ballet Orchestra, I think it's a great orchestra. And I also think that the maybe most important thing to mention is that the dance company is, I think, world class. Now, I have to say I think because I've hardly seen them. <laughs> I think the first time I played there was more than 10 years ago now. But, um, you know, I'm always in the pit, and yeah. I never really get to see the dancers. But I know that they've had reviews in, like, the New York Times, and they've been applauded by all sorts of groups. And the music, uh, the artistic director of the ballet company, uh, I think, used to dance in New York at the American Ballet Theater or the other one. <laughs> Anyway, I think they're a pretty big deal, and uh, some of the dancers are local, grew up in Colorado, and then some of the uh, principal dancers are, um, you know, sourced from around the world. One guy's from Cuba, one who just retired was from Russia, um, and so on. So I think it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. And they play in the L.A. Calkins Opera Hall, which seats almost 3,000, I think, and it's kind of you know, the quintessential opera hall in a sense where you got the, the red seats and a big yeah. chandelier. Uh, it's very modern looking. Uh, it doesn't have, you know, the scrolls on the walls and all the decorations like that. But it's, uh, I, I think it's kind of a big deal. And I love playing there. And um, sometimes I see the audience and sometimes they get all dressed up, which reminds me, oh, yeah, this is, this is a big <laughs> night out for them. Um, <clears throat> so what do you think? Now, Ethan, you've played there. Kent, you've played there as well. Yep. How does uh, this compare to other prestigious gigs like the Boulder Bassoon Quartet? <laughs> well, see, for me, the Boulder Bassoon, th those three things uh, are all about making different customized reeds for each group, for me. So the quartet is all about making a reed that can crank stuff out and can play up high. The... I also play with the Boulder Chamber Orchestra, uh, and that requires a reed um, that allows me to play much more controlled and quietly. Um, and so, those that suggests are, Kent, yes, that the Boulder Bassoon Quartet is out of control. No, 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 that's not what I mean. So the the quartet, 
Um, <laughs> the pinnacle. It's, it's just of... a different. It's just a different style of playing. Um, I have to get around the instrument much easier in the quartet, like up and down. And, yeah. You know, um, and we we do have a very good dynamic range. Uh, so I'm not saying we don't. It's just the kind of reed that I play on in the quartet. I have to get around, so it's just a thicker. It's a thicker read. You're out of the group, Kent. Where's our attorney? <laughs> Dang it! <laughs> well, it's been fun. See you later, everybody. Uh, the chamber orchestra is. You're playing with other instruments who can play quieter. With they can play quieter easier. That's just the way it is. So those kind of reads are more controlled. The playing with the Colorado Ballet is even scarier, I think, than playing with the chamber orchestra. Uh, and I don't know if it's the acoustics of the pit or or what. Um, the first time I played with the ballet, we were sitting in the middle of the stage, or the, the pit, um, and I, I feel like that experience wasn't as terrifying as some of the later ones. And what, I, what was that? Oh. So that was when we did, we did the Rite of Spring, we did the Concerto in, uh, concerto concerto in Pieces. In pieces. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that was a really, really cool experience. And I, I felt like I, my normal set of reeds works just fine there. But every other time since, uh, it's right up against that stupid wall. Uh -huh. um, and it does something to the acoustics. And ever since then, every time I play for, for you guys, there's this little moment of panic that happens right before to make sure my reeds can play absolutely astoundingly quiet. Um, yeah, that first performance with Rite of Spring and Concerto in Pieces, those are not delicate pieces. No, they're not. They don't require yeah. supreme finesse with soft entrances and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and it, that was a large orchestra for the ballet. That was, um, you know, the pit was full. Um, other performances, like the Nutcracker, that's a pretty small orchestra. And um, when we play quietly, oftentimes, uh, you know, if you imagine an orchestra, usually the bassoon is directly in front of the conductor and most of the way back. But for the normal setup in the pit, if you imagine the conductor, like you are the conductor, you, the bassoons are way off to your right and we're positioned against the wall. So immediately to the bassoonist's left are the seats. And so whoever's playing second bassoon is right up against the wall and that feels awkward in terms of the way that the, you know, the acoustics bounce back to you. And I think that whoever is stuck in that position winds up feeling like they're, the sound they're creating is probably louder than it actually is. But in any regards, it's always uncomfortable. The other like part of truck is what I feel like. Semi truck? Yeah. You're the semi truck? Yeah. Or the wall is bearing down on you like a no, semi truck? No, my, my sound compared to everybody else in that pit feels like a semi truck. Oh, okay. Out in the audience, mm -hmm. it's a whole different story. Yeah. The one time that I've been in the audience, um, I thought everybody sounded much more normal than I was expecting. And mm -hmm. We get feedback from other professional musicians who attend the ballet, and they said that everything sounds much better than it does actually in the pit. We get like zero feedback in the pit. It, it's unpleasant. Yeah. It's such a dry thing. I just have no idea. Like The sound that I'm sending out there, is it good? <laughs> it's such a big haul. I wound up going for like a, a big, bright, sort of buzzy sound. Like there are times I'll work on reeds at home and I'll play on a reed and I think, oh, this is atrocious. It's so abrasive and ugly and harsh. And then I'll go sit in the pit and like, oh, this is great. <laughs> right. 
it's responsive, it's going to project, it'll carry. Uh, it's a, it's a, such a different experience. What do you think, Staples? Well, yeah, I mean, it was, it was interesting because we were very far back in the, in the pit. I wasn't as worried about the, the playing quiet uh, aspect. But for me, it, it was all about just can you play in tune? And, and it's interesting how much, like, you, like, I thought I could play in tune, but I was always just a little bit off, and just a little bit off, and, and that orchestra is just no good. So I'd be playing passages that seemed really easy, but when you try and play that with that kind of exacting intonation, it just, it, it's way harder. Yeah. It's, it's easier to stand out. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a good way. As we all know, fads come and go, culture shifts, but there's one thing that we can always rely on from here on out, and that is the Boulder Bassoon Quartet t-shirt is always going to be stylish. You want to impress your friends? You want to look cool? You want to fit in? You want to stand out? Boulder Bassoon Quartet t-shirt fits it all. BoulderBassoons.com there's an interesting thing that happens when you're really in tune in that like you you kind of meld into the other person's sound and the people around you so if you're if you're not disappearing into the sound of everyone else like you're wrong (laughs) and so often I wouldn't exactly know why I was wrong but I would know that because I didn't have that kind of melding experience with the other musicians I was doing something wrong now you were playing with my wife who plays on a 9000 series heckle which is from the 40s yeah. And you're using your bassoon, a heckle from the 20s. Yeah. Um, did you find that you were able to, to find that secret melting place where you just kind of create one super bassoony tone? Yeah, I think I was. I think it took me about until the, the last weekend <laughs> <laughs> to, to get there. But I, I think after a lot of just like going back and forth and practicing things during the breaks and things like that, I, I eventually got pretty comfortable with that experience. Yeah. It's interesting because there'll time there'll be times when Cody and I will find the sweet spot and we'll we'll match like that, but then there are times when we're playing right, 
but we don't really match so well. Yeah. And it is just because I think my bassoon is from the 90s and hers is from the 40s. Yeah. And she, you know, gears her tone towards that idea. Mm-hmm. But like if Kent's substituting and he's got his modern style bassoon, I think it's, it can be easier for us to find that matching point mm-hmm. where we just kind of have that unified tone. Um, and then the way that you make reads, like, you know, my read making has changed a lot to find that, that kind of tone mm-hmm. quicker in a big setting like that. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was very lucky to get to play at the ballet when I was a grad student. And, you know, I got, my, my teacher at CU was a bassoonist in the ballet, and so he was able to spoon feed me all the tips and tricks about playing the Nutcracker. And so we spent a lot of time going over all this stuff and extra lessons. And I would go down to Denver and play with the other bassoonist before rehearsals. And he would teach me, like, okay, now in this bar, we're going to slow down here and you got to watch the conductor for this. And so every, you know, they've been playing this forever. So every measure of the Nutcracker is set in stone. And there's only one day to rehearse and then we perform for real. So they really... You know, it was the first time that I really, really prepared the way you're supposed to, where you get the score out and you listen mm-hmm. to the recordings and go through it and all that, and then um, work with the other guys in the bassoon section before rehearsal. Mm-hmm. So I got a lot of extra preparation. And even with all that, the first performance was totally nerve-wracking and mm-hmm. a horrible, <laughs> scary experience. <laughs> but I, I was very fortunate to have that experience because I... I learned a lot, and I played differently from then on out, many other things. Um, but still, even after that, after I graduated and everything, and I would go off into a professional gig, I was amazed about the differences between playing in a school orchestra and playing in a professional thing. And <clears throat> how, do you, how do you teach that? Yeah, you know, I thought a lot about that after I played... Uh, played with the ballet like how how do you teach that skill and I think a lot of what it comes down to is being able to really teach uh, and be absolutely insistent upon the fundamentals because like everything else is is built upon that I I remember I I had this one glorious bar where I felt like I can make music here and the rest of it (laughs) the the other 30 pages were about being in tune and in time and so like it, it was just this weird experience of, of kind of looking back on on how I've prepared for things in the past and saying, okay, it, like it, if you're not absolutely insistent on playing in tune all the time, then you have to go back and practice that. And that's why things like, you know, the, the really simple, you know, practicing long tones, practicing your scales, practicing the, the Hertzberg method of, of scales where you do intervalic training mm-hmm. um, and being in tune at different intervals. Um, I think things like that are, are really kind of the, the thing. It's, it's really basic, but it's so true. How do you teach your students, Mike, here at the university? How do you get them ready to go out there in the real world? Oh, um, I, I don't know how to answer that question right now. That's a tricky thing in as much as you know, when I first started at Metro State, um, my first four students and five of my first seven students didn't finish the program. I've only had a couple of students uh, who 
were even interested in pursuing uh, the bassoon at a level remotely close to what you're talking about uh, or even getting to that point. But I guess we start with the fundamentals. Um, we do lots of scales. We do scales and patterns. We use the, um, the Simon Kovar book uh, edited by Hertzberg. Um, we use the Giampieri and we do a bunch of those Mildy scale and arpeggio studies. Um, the woodwind area here just just within the last year has added in um, a long list of technical requirements for uh, passing through juries at each semester of study. Um, and it includes uh, all of your major scales, all of your minor scales, at tempo requirements, um, memorized uh, scales and thirds, uh, all of your triads and seventh chords, um, diminished scales, whole tone scales, Ugh, my brain hurts just thinking about it. And it occurs to me that throughout all of my studies, nobody asked me to do all of that. Maybe mm -hmm. in undergraduate, I had to do my major and minor scales. Mm -hmm. At CU, we didn't even have to do juries. At, mm -hmm. As uh, graduate students, we uh, sometimes sat in on the undergraduate juries. Uh, I had to sit through all of them. Yeah. Ugh. I think I only had to sit through a couple. Um, just the worst. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I definitely struggle on a daily basis with my own doubts of whether or not I'm preparing uh, my bassoon students, but also even the, like the music theory classes that I teach. Am I making sure that I'm preparing the students for the highest level that they can achieve? And some days I feel like I'm almost getting there, and some days I'm not so sure. So I don't know. I don't think that's the answer that you were really looking for. Well, everybody's got a, I mean, a different set of priorities. And if you got a student who is definitely not interested in performing professionally, um, they don't have to push themselves to play the softest pianissimo you've ever heard. But if you do have somebody who wants to play in an orchestra, playing solo music doesn't help very much. No, it really doesn't. <clears throat> It's all the boring stuff. <laughs> Long tone, scales, arpeggios. Um, that's the meat and potatoes. It's a very dry, it's almost like being an engineer. You've got this instrument and you've got to figure out how to make this instrument do exactly what you want every time, regardless of how you might feel, and regardless of whether you don't want to play this piece of music or whatever. If the conductor says, all right, we're going to take this line and move it up an octave and make it pianissimo, will you be able to play it? Um, and all of the skills needed to do that really comes from the dry, boring mm -hmm. practicing, many hours of pushing yourself to play quieter and louder and longer and play your scales faster and more evenly and listen, listen, listen. Um, Somewhere and, in here is a discussion about learning to make reads as well. Because, yeah. you know, one of the last podcasts we did, we were talking about the difference in instruments and how having a, a bad instrument just makes life terrible for you. And I don't know, I felt like un until I came here and it was after I was at CU um, that I really wasn't playing on very good reeds. And they made my life difficult. And when, I think it was, it was, it was Glenn Einschlag, he gave me a reed lesson and he pretty much changed how I thought about reads. And ever since then, it's like, why, 
why didn't somebody teach me this 20 years ago, really? Yeah. Because it completely changed how I played the bassoon. And I had done professional auditions on these reeds that weren't very good. Um, anyway, I, I didn't mean to get too off track, but I, <clears throat> I think... Uh, having working equipment... Yeah, yeah, exactly. It makes a big difference. Yeah. Well, and speaking, I mean, talking about acting like an engineer, right? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, reeds are exactly that. They're yeah. this super complex set of all these different, uh, like, symmetries and characteristics that you have to kind of get exactly right. Yep, yep. I think the big thing is making a lot of reeds. Yeah. I, I had decent reed lessons throughout my college career but nobody ever required me to have like a new read each week for a lesson or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I could coast by on a mediocre read for a month or something. And um, Just a few months ago, I used a different read for each performance of the Nutcracker up until I think the 16th show. 16 different reads. And I got to the point where like, when Kent was subbing actually, I clipped a tip that morning and played on that read in the performance <laughs> that afternoon. Um, I'm impressed. I just, I mean, that was kind of luck of the draw. That one just <laughs> happened to be good, and I felt comfortable enough. Um, and I thought that was great. And then a few weeks later, I was playing The King and I, and I discovered that the guy who played King and I in Washington, D.C., who actually is a Colorado native, Joey Grimmer, who grew up down the street here in Longmont, um, he's principal bassoon of the National Opera. He played King and I for 40 shows, and he had a different read for each one of them. No, I think wow. he did that sort yeah. of as the, like, you know, it's a musical, it's not that hard, so let's use this as an opportunity to push myself a little bit and see if I can do this. Sure. Um, but also, when that's your job, your full-time job, is to play the bassoon, it's easier to put in the time to do that. Yeah, I think yeah. I read that Billy Short, principal bassoonist at the Metropolitan Opera, makes three mummies a day. Yeah. A mummy being a, a blank, a starting point for a read. So... If you're making three a day and you're making a billion reads and you've, you're just swimming in reads, if you come across a read that does not allow you to do what, you're, what you want, you can just toss it aside and move on with your life. But if you have a total of five reads, then <laughs> you really have to pour over it. I um, noticed you looked at me when you said that. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know. Total coincidence, I'm sure. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, that'll wrap it up for this episode. Might be a while until we have another episode of the Boulder Pursuit Quartet podcast um, because we have a few events in April and then that's it until next year while we're working on some internal projects. So be in touch. Give us a five-star review on the iTunes store. Download our, our beautiful albums we got From the Opposite Shore available immediately. We have the Nutcracker Suite also available at boulderpursuits.com. And coming soon is our new album, collection of fun tunes, um, some old arrangements and new works just for the Bullet Pursuit Quartet. And alt on Amazon Prime. Oh, and alt. You can check us out in movie form on Amazon Prime. Check out alt, A-L-T, directed by Adrian Bishop. Why don't we play a little snippet of uh, one of our own 80s pop tunes. Come on, Eileen. There you go. Yeah. All right. This is Come on, Eileen. Come on, Eileen.